Avengers, assemble. In the wake of Endgame, some were lost, others regained. They're good. What happens next? Stay tuned, true believers, as we try to find out. Peter Melnick. Graphic designer, comic book enthusiast, and podcast pontificator. And I'm Eddie Wilson. Upstate New York radio announcer in the Sullivan Catskills with an inordinate amount of catching up in his own comic book universe. Ready? It's time for a new episode of The Marvelists. Hi, this is Jerry Conway, co-creator of The Punisher, the uh, man who killed Gwen Stacy, and various other characters you've probably read. And you're listening to The Marvelists with Peter Melnick and Eddie Wilson. Welcome, everyone, to The Marvelists, the Marvel Universe podcast. I'm Peter Melnick. And I'm Eddie Wilson. And before we get into the usual rigmarole of today's episode and introducing our very special guest, yes. we want to tell you all at home how you can get a hold of us on them, our social medias. You do it home, otherwise, in the car. Thanks for listening. Thanks for the ride. Go ahead. <laughs> what? Go. All right. Go on Facebook at facebook.com slash The Marvelists. Give us a follow ski, a like ski, all whatever skis on there. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter at The Marvelists. Give us a follow individually on social media, myself on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Peter Melnick Podcaster, and on Twitter and Instagram at Peter Melnick. And there is only one place in the whole worldwide interwebs that you can find E. Wilson, and it is on Instagram at Interwebs, Outerwebs, Spiderwebs, Underwebs. Eddie, 9193. Underwebs. Are those the things like in the Steve Ditko Spider Man, like in, or underneath the arm? Yeah. I, that would make sense. Also, you can find us on a wide variety of streaming platforms, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Stitcher Radio, Podbean, etc., etc. Most of those are available for all iOS and Android devices. You're not going to find iTunes on an Android, though, because Android sucks. But Oof. I digress. You can also find us, like I said, on iTunes, where you can rate, review, and subscribe. And when you're on iTunes, be sure to give us a five-star review. And, Eddie, guess what? Uh, I left the building. <laughs> Much like the ice cream machine at McDonald's, four stars or below just does not work. I'm not loving it. <laughs> ba da ba ba ba. Uh. Now, Eddie, on the other end of the tin cannon string, we are joined with a man who is responsible for so much in the comic book world. He is responsible for the co creation of The Punisher, as well as a guy who goes through a lot of combs, much like they said on Robot Chicken, Firestorm, and he's the guy that. Killed a blonde in a comic book once. You know, you might have heard of her. Her initials are GS. No, it's not George Steele. No, we are joined with Jerry Conway. Good evening, Jerry. Hi, guys. How are you doing? Better now, thanks, Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> so, Jerry, your career has spanned such a long time, and you've accomplished so much as a writer. You are responsible for so many different characters and storylines in the comic book community. What is that like? Well, uh, it's, it's a very strange thing to look back on your career from uh, the, the perspective I look at uh, these days. Because at the time, when I was doing a lot of this work, uh, it was just trying to get through the day, you know, trying to meet my deadlines, come up with a story that was interesting to me and hopefully to the readers, uh, and have fun. You know, I mean, we, the, the prime phase of my writing career uh, in comics was from, uh, you know, the early 
70s, late 60s, early 1970s to the late 80s. And for a large portion of that during the 70s, we thought the business was going to die. So Mm. we we were not really thinking about the future and the idea that any of this material would still be relevant or uh, uh, have any kind of status decades later would have struck me at the time as, as kind of fantastic. Well, Jerry, was it really, not to interrupt right away, but the idea of the industry dying in the 70s, was that strictly because of sales or other factors? That, oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, there, uh, it was a combination of things. I mean, sales was definitely uh, the main uh, 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 reason for that feeling. I mean, you, you, you were looking at uh, books of, well, for, for example, Superman, when I first started writing comics in around 1968, was selling about a million copies a month. Uh, by 1970, it was selling about 600,000 a month. By 72, 73, it was down to 300,000 a month. I mean, that's not a good direction. <laughs> yeah, no, I, personally, and, I was just unaware of, and not having started to collect myself till the mid-ish, late 70s, that, that there was a downturn at that period of time. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there was a it was a, d- a downturn. I mean, it was a downturn starting in the late '60s after the uh, end of the Batman craze. Uh, Marvel was doing marginally better than DC in terms of individual uh, sales on average, uh, but both companies were seeing much uh, much reduced sales uh, overall. Uh, primarily because the, the 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 boom in the business had, had come with the baby boom, you know. I mean, when you, it, it's simple mathematics. Uh, you had a lot of ten-year-olds uh, uh, in 1964, who by 1974 were 20-year-olds, and unlike today, when when comics uh, uh, are really all ages, uh, the, the comics that uh, were being published at that time were directed almost exclusively to a 13-year-old uh, readership. You know, that was the kind of the, the, the mind's eye that, that uh, uh, publishers uh, had, you know, and how they perceived their readers. Uh, and maybe the Marvel readership was a little bit older, you know, maybe 15. Mm-hmm. But you know, we, didn't, we, we couldn't see a market because uh, the market had collapsed. The baby boom at that point uh, was no longer... Uh, uh, you know, buying comics, uh, and it wasn't really, I think, until uh, deep into the late '80s that y- you could really start counting on an adult readership. Well, how old? Um, um, I was going to say, how old were you when you got your first? And what was your first uh, comic book uh, sale? Or my first as a comic as a reader purchased? Yeah, I would say probably. I'd say eight or nine, uh, so it was around 1960. Uh, I can remember buying, like, the, the Superman annual, the first Superman annual, uh, the first Batman annual. Uh, I bought uh, Fantastic Four number four at the, at the newsstand. Mm. So I came in, you know, around between 1960 and 1962 or so. Uh, that was my, my conscious entry into comics, but I probably was reading them before that. What uh, um, okay? Well, what what do you remember? In uh, I guess it's a little bit later. Your letter that uh, I read appeared in Fantastic Four number fifty in in nineteen sixty six. I think you were thirteen then. 
um, would you say, oh, that was a great issue from, I forget how far back they go, maybe three issues it was, prior? Uh, the introduction of Black Bolt, I think. Yeah, it was uh, early on. It's kind uh, of... But yeah, I mean the, Mar- the 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 Marvel comics of the of the uh, early '60s would, were uh, transformative, you know, for me as a reader. I'd been a a, a DC fan. I still was uh, a DC fan, uh, at least a, a Julie Schwartz edited comic DC fan. Um, but once those Marvel books started coming out, uh, there was no comparison for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like. It was, uh, these are books that spoke to me directly. And I'm sure you uh, felt pretty, uh, pretty revved up or whatever to, uh, to see that letter in the comic book. Oh, sure, sure. And uh, ironically, I, about a month later, I had one in Justice League, which is my other uh, favorite uh, comic of, of the time. Oh, that, that's sunken. Um, you said, I'm going into this now. I'm, I'm published in two companies. <laughs> <laughs> well, by that point, too, I was, I was becoming aware of people like uh, Jim Shooter, who was writing for uh, uh, writing Legion of Superhero stories? I think, uh, and my ambitions, you know, started to started to to rise up, <laughs> and mm-hmm. I wanted to be part of that too. It's also uh, really crazy. I, oh, go yeah. ahead. Well, and, I, and it was within the next year or so that I started pushing to to uh, sell something to the comics uh, as a writer. So. Uh, you know, it was all all part of the same era in my life. Yeah. And it's kind of crazy seeing a lot of the, you know, a lot of people that are a part of the comic industry, they got their start essentially as a letter writer in oh, like sure. Fantastic Four. You know, you have yourself, Don McGregor was in number 33. I know that offhand. I don't know why, but, you know, <laughs> as well as also famed creator of Game of Thrones, George R.R. R. Martin. He's in like an early sure. Fantastic Four. And it's... Sure. I mean, uh, Mike Friedrich, who was a, a mainstay in the early 70s uh, at, uh, at D.C., was a well-known letter hack, as we used to call them, uh, Marty Pasco. Um, you know, Len Wein, uh, I think, uh, was a letter writer, Marv. Uh, Roy Thomas wrote letters uh, back in the late 50s, uh, you know, to Julie Schwartz. Um, it was, you know, it was, that was our version of fandom at the time. Today we, you know, you do a podcast, right? Yeah. <laughs> but back then, you know, we we wrote letters um, because there were there weren't really even that many. I think it was maybe one or two fanzines that were even being published. Um, so there wasn't a lot of uh, there wasn't many there were not many ways for fans to connect with each other or to respond to the work other than to write letters to the editor. I'm always wondering how people were able to find out about things back then. Like, I know Roy Thomas's magazine or fanzine was uh, Alter Ego, which still is to this mm-hmm. day. But back then, you know, how did people find out about this? Was it like mentioned in like the, the back pages, or did Roy well, just like you know throw paper in airplanes? In some cases, what would happen? Um, you 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 because Julie would print addresses. Uh, you might create pen pal relationships with each other. And uh, sometimes editors would respond uh, directly. You know, like Julie sometimes would actually write a letter back to you. Um, but for those of us who lived in the New York area, the way that you became part of uh, uh, the, the, uh, the background of things, you found out the background of things, was by going to, this, to the offices 
uh, DC had a, 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 a weekly tour during the summer, and that's where I made my, my uh, breakthrough was by uh, going on that tour every week and separating from the tour group and going off and talking to the different editors. Um, and then you would also, you know, interact with the, with other fans who would have, you know, little chunks of, of information or they they had identified who this artist was who um, didn't get credit. And because at one point you, you didn't even have credits on the on the on the story. So you 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 would have to suss out who an artist was by how they drew a particular kind of figure, you know, and <laughs> that's what a nonsense. Um so there was a there was a real element of uh, collaboration amongst fans to try to pierce the veil, you know, of uh, what was really going on behind the scenes. I mean, Bob Kane was drawing Batman for what seems like thirty years. I mean, his name is always on the pages of those. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, man, he uh, he must have had a sore and, wrist. And nobody ever wrote these things either. You know, they were. <laughs> <laughs> it just sort of appeared. <laughs> this is where the question, where do you get your ideas come from? <laughs> well, one of the things that I see among many things that you did, Jerry, is scripting the first Man-Thing story. It reminded me of when the second volume came around, I think in 1979, and the way it was done, uh, I believe then, because I did a little sort of a high school research type project, and I focused on, on that issue, and uh, being told that it was written in the second person because the the word boxes had said the word you a lot, describing the man thing and so on. Um, so I guess what I'm asking is, was that a different style when that came around and for when it was first done by yourself? Did that mean that this was your idea or somebody like Stan came to you and said, hey, it's a muck monster and come up with something? Now, Eddie, do a Stan um, impression. Well, Stan wasn't actually involved in that. That uh, book that much. Uh, it, it, Roy wrote. Roy wrote the plot. Roy mm -hmm. Thomas wrote the plot for that initial issue, and I did the dialogue. Um, and I was looking for a way to uh, do an internal dialogue for the character to, to some extent. But also, I was I was picking up on the fact that this was a uh, a horror title, and there was a tradition, uh, a narrative tradition coming from EC Comics, of uh, second-person horror stories, mm -hmm. you know, where, where uh, characters, you know, would be addressed by the narrator, in effect, and, and uh, you, you would create this sense of dread because you, the reader, were, were being identified as the, uh, uh, the protagonist, you know, because it would be saying, you did this, and then you... Did that. And it was a, a, a way to sort of involve the reader in the psyche of the, the, the victimized hero, uh, because the man thing wasn't, you know, a, a, a straightforward hero. He was a monster, uh, and as initially conceived, he wasn't really even an intelligent creature. Um, he was more instinctive, you know, and responsive. Um, one way that you could you could create that that uh, reader identification would be to, to directly address the reader uh, as you know being in the position of this creature. And then I see a little later you go back to DC and you you wind up a little bit of Swamp Thing time. So you had some, I guess, previous experience under your belt for there. Um, 
I assume different factors involved, of course, from going from one to the other and, and back, that kind of thing. Sure. Well, Swamp Thing and Man Thing had a weird history of co-creation. When you, uh, Len Wein and I were roommates um, at the time that uh, uh, both characters were being created, and I had the artwork for Man Thing uh, on my desk at the time that Len was plotting the first issue of Swamp Thing. <laughs> so <laughs> there, there's always been some... Uh, uh, controversy in, uh, amongst uh, those of us who are part of it uh, about where the influences cross-fertilized, you know, what, which, which character was influenced by which, and how, we, how those two sort of intermingle in their, uh, their origin. Um, you know, all, all I can add to that you know, is that uh, uh, Roy wrote the plot well before Swamp Thing was uh, conceived of as a as a uh, individual title, but not after the original story was written. But the original story was sort of also a response. Uh, the original Swamp Thing story was also a response to uh, you know the the fifties character called the Heap, uh, mm-hmm. which was itself a response to a. Uh, a story by uh, Theodore Sturgeon, a science fiction story, horror story uh, from the 40s. So there's there's all this this interwoven creativity in both both characters and uh, from both companies. And over the past uh, few decades, Swamp Thing has become more and more of a popular figure in the DC universe, and sure. it's it's kind of funny that over at Marvel you have Man Thing and. I kind of want to see the character become more of something, but unfortunately, I think the name hinders it so much, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, Swamp Thing benefited from the fact that uh, Alan Moore uh, reinvented the character. Uh, you know, there, there, that, that's a case, just like with, with Punisher uh, in the 80s when uh, Stephen Grant and uh, Mike Zeck revive the character where you took a, a moribund uh, or uh, a character that, that didn't really have much going for it at that point. You know, it was just sort of like thrown by the wayside and someone comes in who has something to say right. and wants to, wants to, to use that character to say it. And I think Alan's, uh, Alan Moore's uh, uh, stint on Swamp Thing is what made Swamp Thing relevant. And if someone had come along, or yet comes along, with a, a similar uh, passion for man thing, with something to say, I think you know that, that that could also you know rise up. But you know, it's 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 a matter of uh, uh, having a creator with a with a true voice, uh, investing in the character. It's not something you can mandate from on high. You know, you can't say, okay, we're going to turn this character into a into a big hit. Well, yeah. that's not how it works. <laughs> if it was, if you could do that, you know, there'd be a, a, many, many more big hits than there are. I've always been partial to uh, the Steve Gerber run of Man Thing, just because there's like, oh sure, he, he sure. was such a great voice in comics, and mm-hmm. you know, you worked alongside him. What was the guy like? Because we don't have access, to, like you know, interviews or anything like you know nowadays, because yeah. he passed away twelve years ago, and. It, it's such a damn shame, you know? Oh, it truly is. I mean, Steve was 
one of the most unique writers of uh, his generation. He was he was a bit older than me, uh, but he was uh, you know part of the, the generation of writers that came in when I came in. Uh, he was he was this, this truly had a truly unique vision, uh, both comedic and despairing. You know, there, there, he, he could write uh, the, the funniest material that was brokenhearted at the same time. Um, and he was a kind of a mordant figure in real life. You know, he, he uh, was more likely to be depressed than not depressed. Mm. But even depressed, he would be funny, you know. Um, right. he's, he was just a, a really interesting guy we we used to see him a lot uh he, he lived near near us in manhattan my, my first wife and i uh and he he would drop over for dinner and we would see him you know weekly for dinner i'd see him weekly for lunch uh, just the sweetest brightest guy who i i think was probably too intelligent and avant-garde for mainstream comics um, he just didn't quite fit, you know, uh, he was just, um, and, and I don't think he was ever given an artistic collaborator who could really bring out what Steve was trying to create. Um, the weirdest thing to me is that he then went on and, and wrote an animation for, for a long time and was pretty successful at it. Um, uh, which I think is one of the least creative fields that you can be involved in, at least in the 80s. By, by the 90s and uh, late 90s, early 2000s, you know, there was a lot of creative animation, but, but in the 80s it was, uh, you know, just uh, a wasteland. Um, and Steve thrived in it, so that was strange. It's kind of funny because, like, the uh, the modern-day equivalent nowadays of a Steve Gerber, in my opinion, is Mark Russell, the guy who... Uh, He's responsible for the uh, current or the most recent Flintstones comic, Billionaire Island, and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. I see so many parallels between the two of them. And you know, he just uh, he recently did the Marvel snapshot Captain America story, which I haven't gotten to read yet. But there's just something about him that like reminds me so heavily of Steve Gerber. Yeah. Well, I mean, Steve was somebody who who I think he stood outside the field. I mean, in the sense that. He was not a committed comic book fan, um, so he didn't have an axe to grind one way or the other about how a comic book should be written, you know, or what what a, what a comic book should be. He simply told stories, you know, and he used the medium that he was in to tell those stories. Uh, and as a result, there they, he would come at them from an angle that the rest of us would be sort of like, well. How did you think of that? You know, where yeah. did that come from? <laughs> we, he, he just didn't, you know, he wasn't invested in the continuity. He wasn't invested in uh, a particular storytelling style. It was, uh, it was a view from outside, and, and the result was some brilliantly subversive writing. That Howard the Duck run, no pun intended, is the definition of a page turner. Like I last oh, yeah. year revisited the series and I was hooked. Like I, you know, consumed it. Like it's funny. Older comics tend to have like a little, you know, they have more exposition and whatnot, and it takes a little bit longer to go through. I was flipping through those books, like just one, two, three, one, two, three, and by you know, 
I think by three days I was done with the entire run. And it's, it's absolutely crazy to see how well those stories hold up as well. Like they can be a little bit dated in terms of cultural references, but the dynamic of the characters, the overall tone, just solid stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's an example where, you know, he faced a lot of pushback when that character was first introduced in man thing, because it was so surreal, you know, for, for uh, a horror comic to suddenly have this talking duck in it. I mean, it's like, where did that come from? And, you know, the, the ordinary thinking of a comic book uh, company would have would been, uh, this doesn't fit, don't do it. Yeah. And he would have been, you know, just it just wouldn't have happened. Um, fortunately, at that time, there was a lot of chaos at Marvel, and nobody could watch anything that closely. And as a result, uh, you know, creative people like Steve were given pretty much a free hand to go in whatever direction they wanted. Um, and nowadays, you could never do that. You know, you could, you, and, and the business suffers for it, you know, creatively. Uh, everything is pre-planned. Everything is packaged. Everything is uh, audience-tested and uh, market-approved. Market, uh, and, you know, there's no spontaneity. <laughs> there's no, I mean, there's spontaneity, but it's, but it's carefully managed spontaneity. <laughs> And it's very cool to see that with a lot of, you know, these different eras, especially, you know, yourself, when you mentioned you came in the same around the same time as Steve, you were a part of a massive talent shift, you know, yourself, Len Wein, mm-hmm. uh, who else? Chris Claremont, um, Dave Cockrell. Danny O'Neill, um, uh, Marv Wolfman. Uh, I mean, among, just among the writers and among artists, we had Bernie Wrightson and... Uh, uh, Barry Smith, you know, uh, uh, and Neil Adams, you know, I mean, there was a, there was a huge, uh, tonal shift and, and creative shift in the late sixties. And you guys come along and essentially, you know, flip the industry on its ear and it's, it's admirable. You know, it's very, uh, thank you for that. Well, we weren't intending it. I mean, we were intending it in the sense of we wanted to do the stuff we wanted to do. Right. Right. But, uh, the industry was also in dire. Uh, th- this is where the fact that the industry was in dire straits worked to our advantage, because what had been done before and done successfully and done uh, ad nauseum uh, was no longer working, and it was no longer working for reasons that really didn't have anything to do with the quality of the work, but with the diminishing uh, audience and the changing audience. And so as a result, the uh, companies were, were open to anything. You know, they didn't know what was going to work anymore. And the film business was the same. You know, you, you t- uh, the, the revolution of Easy Rider uh, and Bonnie and Clyde in 68 is sort of comparable to what happened in comics, too, um, where the old system of creating something for a particular audience uh, just wasn't responding to what, what to that changing audience. Um, so we were given the opportunity. It's not so much like we we um, uh, stole it as they were helpless and uh, grasping at straws, and we were the straws they grasped. <laughs> it's like uh, I mean, it makes no rational sense to turn over uh, your your mainstream comic book to a nineteen year old to write. 
<laughs> it doesn't make any sense to do that. Uh, but, you know, they were desperate. Um, they, didn't, they didn't know where to go. So, you know, it made, made as much sense as anything else. And what's really interesting about, you know, your, uh, the wave of writers that came in like yourself, a lot, like, it's different from what the previous generation was. Like, you know, the Stan and Jack era where the ideas are coming from things like, you know, pulp magazines and whatnot. And your era, you know, they borrowed a lot from movies. Like, they would see something and be like, how can we incorporate this into this? And mm-hmm. if I'm correct, uh, the character of the Punisher was partially inspired by uh, Paul Kersey, Charles Bronson of the Death Wish movies, correct? Uh, I, not, not him so much uh, as uh, Dirty Harry. Uh, and uh, I mean, the, the, I think the Death Wish movies were coming were, were coming out simultaneously around the same time. But I'd say, from a movie point of view, it would have been Dirty Harry. Uh, but more likely, even uh, characters like the Executioner that were popular in pulp, uh, pulp, pulp fiction, you know, paperbacks. It yeah, is, that's, um, that is uh, a yeah. point that when you said Executioner, I perked up because I had. <laughs> As a teenager, been given one of those paperbacks and discovered a new thing to to grasp, to read, and and so on. Um, yeah, Mac Boland, the the was it Don Pendleton was yeah. the author, and then and that spawned off two other series. But I don't know if I maybe I did hear that before that yeah the Punisher came from uh, the Executioner. He was strictly fighting well, uh, the mafia. Yeah, it was and it wasn't so much that he came from the Executioner as, as sort of inspired by that kind of genre because there were several books like that you know there were several series like that but that that was a time when there was a thing called men's men's adventure fiction which you don't have anymore uh as a, as a genre but it, it was a popular genre at the time and uh the executioner was sort of the avatar of that it is funny though in terms of you know going back over to the character of paul kersey from the death wish movies you know since they're they were concurrent at the same time they both, you know, the Punisher and Paul Kersey, have a similar thing in the sense of their lives go absolutely batshit crazy in terms of things that happen to the characters over time. Like, you know, you look at the uh, further Death, Death Wish movies and it's just so much bizarre, weird stuff happens to them, much <laughs> like the character of Frank Castle. You know, I always jokingly say this is the list of things that have happened to the Punisher in the past 40 or 50 years. He's become a person of color somehow. He became a Frankenstein's monster. He's gone to space. Let's see what else has he done. He's become a war machine. And it's like, as, as the man responsible for the character, what is it like seeing that happen to the character? Just all these strange, bizarre things. He's teamed up with Eminem. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's weird. I mean, uh, you know, the Punisher initially started out as, a, uh, as an anti-hero uh, slash villain. Uh, a henchman to the jackal, um, and when we expanded him into his own series in the block, uh, we had to make him uh, a little more sympathetic. Um, but he didn't really take off on his own until, as I say, the, the Steve Grant uh, Mike Zek series, uh, and then it just became, you know, this is this is a brand that Marvel can. Uh, you know, apply to multiple uses. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's like, so, you know, it's, it's, it's all fine to me. You know, if I, it, it, it's, uh, it's interesting, you know, uh, uh, 
but my actual creative connection to it, you know, sort of stops in the seventies, and from then on, it's sort of I'm just watching it as a uh, mm-hmm. uh, as a bystander, you know, uh, pleased in some cases and horrified in others, but for the most part, you know, just happy that people are still talking about it, still interested. With reciting that list of all the things I said, you know, that have happened to the character, what do you think is the next logical progression to happen to him? <laughs> Don't throw logic well, into this. I, 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 I'm a, I'm a uh, when it comes to, to characters, I'm more of a traditionalist in the sense that I, I think the, the best version of a character is the original version. Yeah. Um, you know, the most stripped down, most... Um, uh, archetypical version of the character. Um, I, I, it, to me, it's just flailing about when you start adding and subtracting and, you know, changing things. I mean, I could certainly see uh, Frank Castle as a man of color, you know, a different man of color, or even as a, as a, as a female character, Francis Castle. I mean, Francine. all of that is valid. <laughs> but what you really want to stick to is the, is the essence of this conflicted, damaged uh, warrior who uh, is basically taking the war home with him uh, or her uh, and applying, you know, the, the rules of war to uh, a socially collapsed, you know, society that is in social collapse. Um, and that's where the dynamic comes. You know, what, whether he's dressed up as a robot or it's in space or whatever, all of that is just irrelevant. You know, it's it's what's the purest expression of that uh, dynamic? How can, you, how can you express that most purely? And that's what you should be going for. Um, you know, the sex of the character, the, the race of the character isn't really relevant. I mean, Frank Castle was Frank Castle because that was the era in which he was created. Right. Um, it doesn't, you know, that's not, that's not an inherent uh, aspect of the character. Um, but... You know, just as Green Lantern needs the green ring, <laughs> mm-hmm. and everything else is open to debate, um, you know, the Punisher needs to be a damaged warrior whose uh, response to the failure of society is to go to war against the bad guys and that, that he feels society cannot uh, touch. Right. Anything else is just uh, you know, gilding that lily. And, you know, recently you just did the uh, Skulls for Justice campaign in support of Black Lives right. Matter. And it's one of those things where, how do, how do I say, it was, uh, I ended up getting the shirt just because, like, the one design especially was phenomenal looking. The one, oh, yeah, yeah. And, you, again, you know exactly which one yeah. I'm talking about, too, by the way, yeah, yeah. with the uh, red letters on there. <laughs> and yeah. it's, it's interesting seeing the character get adopted by certain people and... Of course, you know, as with the Skulls for Justice campaign, seeing poli- uh, people such as police officers identifying with the character seems about as on par with a, a chef really enjoying the work of De- uh, Jeffrey Dahmer. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's what's well, missing the point. You know, it's like I say, the essence of the character is an outlaw, uh, you know, someone who feels that uh, society has failed to uh, uphold its principles, whatever they may be, you know, and, and protect individuals, and that therefore he is going to go to war outside of society against the people that society can't uh, uh, touch. 
That's not what a cop does in any way, shape, or form. (laughs) In fact, it's the opposite of what a cop is supposed to do. So I think it shows to me that that the people who who wear those emblems uh, or or embrace that emblem uh, have forfeited their right to wear a badge. I've always um, thought with the way the fan, like the people that also adopt, you know, adopt the character. Correct me if I'm wrong, either of you guys. Did wasn't the Punisher in the uh, Thomas Jane one, the 2004 movie? Wasn't he a cop originally at one point? Uh, I don't remember. Uh, I, mean, I, I, I haven't seen that film, to be honest. Because <laughs> eh, eh. <laughs> it, it's one of those. It's sounding a little familiar. I'm not sure if it was with that particular version. Because it's always also the the skull they embrace too is the movie version from 2004. So I'm always like, you guys haven't even read a comic book. No, I think it was more that uh, Thomas Jane character of Punisher was in the service, but I think the one after had been a uh, what was the one after that? That that was uh, Warzone. Right, I thought yeah, he but, was the yeah. cop. Not one hundred percent. I don't know. I mean, yeah. he, he seemed to be the one most clearly identified visually with the comics mm-hmm. um, but I've, I haven't been able to watch I mean I, di- I didn't see either of the first two movies uh, because I at Marvel at that time hadn't come to any terms of you know what uh, how I was going to be credited or whatever for, mm-hmm. for the character um, so really the only thing that I'm I'm uh, personally familiar with is the Netflix series, uh, which I think did a, did justice to uh, the complexity of that, of that character and story. Yeah. And Bernthal is, he knocks it out of the park in that portrayal. Like he's, mm-hmm. there, out of all the oh, people yeah. that have played the Punisher, because the, there's four, four live-action Punishers, uh, Bernthal, Ray Stevens, uh, Thomas Jane, and uh, Dolph Lundgren, and... Yeah, he is the most like the character, yeah. and just yeah, he's, he he embodies that rage and 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 uh, damage. You know, that's because it's it's a combination of those things. You know, I mean, there's a visual hint to it in uh, Ross Andrew version of the Punisher because he has this scar, uh, and that scar is you know kind of a visual representation of, of the of the damage. Um, you know, and, and for whatever reason, as as the character has gone on, you sort of lose the scar. But you know, it was it was very much there. You know, in the original presentation. And you know, of course, there's always people going. Oops, sorry, hit the microphone. <clears throat> and of course, there's always going to be people people going on. You know, talking about that portrayal of the character. And you know, there's always been rumor and innuendo for like the past, I think, two years since everything ended with the Netflix series. Will we ever see Bernthal, you know, his version of the Punisher, trans, you know, go over into the Marvel Cinematic Universe? And I know you you shared links as well, you know, like people like, please let it happen, please let it happen. And I'm in agreement. I would love to see that character up there on the big screen or even on, you know, the small screen with Disney Plus interacting with characters like Moon Knight or just something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think it would be perfect for uh, uh, FX on Hulu. Absolutely. You know, that's- that's their adult, uh, you know, version of things, and you know, it's all it, it's all up in the air. Uh, I mean, they certainly could start doing it, you know, at some point uh, fairly soon, uh, according to the contractual uh, limitations they have with Netflix. Um, 
whether they will, you know, that's a judgment call that, you know, is way above my pay grade. <laughs> so I, I'd be happy to see it. You know, I, I would be delighted with that and uh, so many other, you know, there's so, so much good that came out of those Netflix shows and so much bad. Um, but, you know, certainly Berenthal and uh, uh, Charlie Cox's uh, Daredevil, Matt, Matt Murdock and Deborah Ann Wall as... Uh, Karen Page and, and God Vincent D'Onofrio is Kingpin. I mean, those were all right hit right out of the park, you know. Yeah. Uh, and it would be delightful to see any of that, you know, uh, revived or or rebooted in some form. It's funny seeing that you know they they have the Hugh Jackman slash Robert Downey Jr. syndrome in the sense of no other person should play those characters because they've become like that that character became synonymous with those actors. And you, mm-hmm. you mentioned uh, the actress who played Karen Page, and it doesn't—it doesn't occur to me that much to think about it. But yeah, even her, like she is Karen Page. I can't see anybody yeah. else play that character. Yeah, I mean, it would be—it would be a little awkward. And also, why? You know, I mean, she's available. Yeah, <laughs> so it's like—it's not like you know, it's not like you—you you couldn't make a deal with any of these people. There, there's no reason to go go for someone other than. Vincent D'Onofrio as Kingpin. You know, he's perfect. <laughs> you, know, you can't really beat it. Recent. Uh, so why would you? Why would you? Um, you know, the only question is whether you find a use for the character. Yeah. Um, you know, and uh, that's that's a that's a different question. You know, that's something they they've got a big chessboard. Uh, you know, very carefully worked out uh, set of scenarios for how they want to proceed over the next de- next next decade. And uh, if they can fit this material in, I, I'm sure they'd love to. Uh, you know, they are fanboys, you know, and, and you'd have to be blind not to recognize the qualities of some of the material that came out of uh, the Netflix uh, experiment. Uh, and they're not blind, you know. They're not stupid people. Uh, they know that, that John Barenthal is literally perfect you know, for that part, and uh, is clearly, you know, very willing to continue. Uh, it's just a question, do you have a place for it? You know, is there, is there some use you can make of it in your, uh, your campaign? And for yourself, you know, you're, you're a person who's created these iconic characters, and as a result, these characters end up having, you know, legendary runs of series. Like, for example, you created The Punisher, and we have Garth Ennis who knocked it out of the park with, you know, his Punisher mm-hmm. Max and his Welcome Back Frank and, you know, the 2004 uh, series, I believe, or 2003. You have that. Sure. And then you also are a person who's, t- you know, took a character like Spider-Man and you ended up making an iconic run, especially with the Death of Gwen Stacy story. And it's right. it's kind of cool that you're on both ends of the spectrum for that, you know. You created something, yeah. and you also perfected something that was already pre-made. Well, I think people who can come in to a, uh, a, a, a an existing character and, and bring something of themselves to it have an advantage. Uh, you know, sometimes, as a creator, you don't really you you don't really see the material uh, for its potential. You know, sometimes you're you're narrowly focused on one aspect of it, or you have a um, uh, preconception that uh, 
this is as far as you can go with this, you know, you can do that, and that's all you got. Uh, and certainly that's been true for me with some of the characters that I've created where, you know, I saw part of the potential, but I didn't see the full potential. And at the same time, coming in from outside, you're able to look at it as both uh, a fan of the material and as a, a critic of the material and see it and say, oh, this is, this is something, an opportunity you missed here, let me try this. Um, you know, when I, I, when I came on to Spider-Man, I never felt like I was um, doing anything that was oppositional to what Stan would do. My goal was to take what I saw as implied in Stan's run uh, and or, or origination of the material and take it to its next logical step, you know, its next emotional step. Um, so that was my contribution, you know, which was to to help that character grow up a bit, um, you know, to see the to see the potential for the next stage of stories that that character could uh, get involved in, uh, and that's what any talented, you know, uh, 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 writer can, can or or artist can bring to a character is to see the potential past. The original creation. The trick is to not become antagonistic to that original creation and not uh, uh, undermine it. You know, I, what, what, what bugs me is when people come in and say, uh, I'm going to uh, show, the, the, show why this doesn't work. <laughs> you know, mm. because if it did work, then why not figure out why it worked and make it work even better? And that's what Garth did with Punisher. You know, is he, he took the idea of the damaged, uh, uh, broken man, you know, and uh, explored that to show how that could uh, uh, play out, you know, in a, in a semi-realistic world. Um, you know, when, when, when creators come in and, and, and say, I, I actually don't accept the original premise, I'm going to show why it doesn't work. Then you're sort of like, why are you bothering? You know, why are you why are you working on this? You know, this happens sometimes. Used to happen in films all the time when before uh, the, uh, the the 2000s, when people would adapt comic books and undermine the, the original premise mm. <laughs> because they didn't accept it. You know, or they saw or they saw something that uh, uh, to them didn't seem correct. You know, or didn't seem plausible so they would undermine it and turn it into something else uh that's like my big my my big argument with zack snyder's interpretation of superman uh, oh come on he's great know, as a brooding guy instead of a bastion of hope <laughs> you know i mean it it just seemed to me that that he kind of missed the point you know yeah and if if you fundamentally miss the point of a character it doesn't matter how good you are at telling the story uh from that point on you have just blown your, your blown your shot, you know. So I'm uh, guessing you're not behind hashtag back the or uh, uh, release the air cut either, are you? <laughs> well, actually, I don't know because with air, uh, the uh, what we saw was was such a mishmash. It's really hard to know what his original interpretation was, um, and maybe it would be good. I don't know. I'm, I I actually prefer. I, I'm a big big push. I, I want to see the Schneider cut, for example. I'm, 
really excited by that because whether I agree with it or not, I want to see what he intended to do. Mm. Um, just because I think, you know, as long as you made the damn film, let's see it, right? Uh, with Ayers, you know, he, he was so uh, undercut by the studio uh, that it's really hard to assess the film at all. You know, I don't know what it was. I don't know what it would have been. Uh, I know that there are parts of it that are really great, and there are parts of it that are really awful. <laughs> I just don't know which, what is his fault, you know? What's, what, what, what was his responsibility? What did he intend? I always say there's like a small part of me that feels bad for Jared Leto for that movie because, I f- <sighs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's such a talented actor and clearly had a, had a, a vision for that character. Um, and maybe, you know, in, a, in a, a different cut of the film, it would have worked. Um, we don't know. <laughs> you know. We really can't tell. Because what sh- we got was this this uh, hacked up monstrosity. It's Mark a shame. Wolfman, who who read the original screenplay, and uh, you know did the novelization, uh, has made some cryptic comments to me about that. Uh, you know, it went a, it went in a whole different direction. <laughs> you know, it was a whole different pic- picture, and uh, it was very frustrating for him. As, the um, uh, writer of the adaptation to have to, you know, constantly change things around in the course of writing the adaptation. Uh, if you read the adaptation, you can see that there's there are large parts of the the, the story that uh, never made it into the cut that are still in the the the, uh, the novelization um, that clearly show there was much more going on there than what we saw. I just feel bad for Leto that, you know, he did all this work and, you know, practice and research and everything mm-hmm. for the role, and all he's remembered for, especially by people like myself who are, you know, just massive cynics of just hunka hunka. So I feel bad for yeah. the guy. Yeah. Jerry, with respect to what works, what did doesn't work, if you can recall of all the characters that you've been involved with, co-created are there any that you wished did better got further wanted to develop more i I see in in your credits uh the deserter and the vixen as examples yeah and what they they were about yeah i mean i i have have less to say about that but that was more you know more of my interest in uh uh civil war uh, uh stories than anything else but with with Vixen and also Gypsy and uh, the JLA uh, Detroit uh, I wish that I had been better at uh, fighting certain battles uh, and uh, had been better at uh, (laughs) just in my life at that point than I was because I I think there was a lot more potential to to, the, to those stories than we were ultimately able to develop. Uh, Gypsy in particular is a character that I think had much more potential than I, uh, uh, than I realized in her. Uh, you know, she, the, the story that I had intended for her was much, had, had much greater depth and would have been, I think, you know, pretty cool. Um, but 
I was not in a place to uh, to, to write that uh, effectively, and I wasn't really supported, you know, by my editorial uh, uh, collaborators uh, in a way that that would have enabled me to do it. Um, Vixen, I think, has shown a lot more potential, uh, and, and you know, continues to be, a, you know, a really interesting character. Um, you know, I'm proud of the fact that she was the first black female superhero at DC. Um, and I think uh, she could certainly, you know, do a further revival, you know, at the hands of some talented creators today. So I would love to see that. And what was Vixen's um, little bit of backstory or, pow- or power, that kind of thing? Oh, well, I mean, she was, a, she was uh, from an African country. She was the... Um, daughter of a prime minister uh, who was uh, assassinated. Uh, she uh, had uh, a familial connection to uh, a mystic totem that uh, you know, ran in her family and uh, gave her powers to evoke uh, animals and creatures, uh, you know, the powers of those animals and creatures to herself. Uh, my original conception of her was to turn her I mean, when I first started developing the character, I was thinking that she was kind of like a, uh, uh, like the daughter of a of a Bruce Wayne type of character. Uh, this is before she became black, but you know, when I was first thinking of this character, who discovers that her father was uh, not Bruce Wayne, but you know, sort of like the ultimate bad guy, uh, and then she inherits his his empire. Uh, and has to decide whether she's going to use it for good or bad, and she uses it for, for good. Um, so the, the initial thought was in total opposition to where I ended up taking the character, which was much more uh, of, an, of a um, uh, social justice warrior, uh, you know, but, but with superpowers uh, and uh, uh, history, you know, going back to uh, African uh, uh, post-colonial uh, let me change up and ask about a couple of other titles that I see you just had looks like input into one issue. Uh, Planet of the Apes, number one from 1974. Was it bananas? Oh God, uh, it was bananas. Uh, I, I was I was a uh, go-to writer at Marvel for uh, new projects uh, because I was fast and uh, uh, I could set things up, and then we'd pass them on to other newer writers who. Uh, would, would hopefully follow up. You know, I mean, that's what happened with uh, War of the Worlds uh, when Don McGregor took over for me and, uh, and took it in a much more interesting direction than I probably would have. Um, you know, and, and Planet of the Apes obviously became uh, Doug Munch's book, and, and that was great. Um, you know, so that was, my, that was my role. I did a lot of one-shots, mm-hmm. you know, Yeah, no, I see that in a couple of other instances. Yeah, Logan's Run also... Um... But then uh, I get King down to Dracula. another. Yeah. <laughs> Dracula. yeah. Okay. Uh, there's another thing that caught my eye, and that's because I recently came across came into possession of several of these issues. Is your eye okay? And that's yeah, and that's from <laughs> uh, Skywall Publications, also in the early '70s, and that is uh, Nightmare. What what uh, what's that about? I have no idea. Uh, <laughs> I there, love the simplicity of what's that about. <laughs> I I also did stuff for uh, for um, Chip Goodman's company Atlas. Um, some of this was just, you know, being bored with doing the same old, same old and wanting, wanting to do some, 
material on the side just to, to keep my hand in as a freelancer. Um, you know, and, and you know, you, 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 when, when you're doing, doing a, uh, uh, several series for the same company, uh, you can get into a rut and, uh, doing a one shot or two, you know, a, a, a single issue or, uh, one story, uh, for someone else can freshen things up for you as a creator. So that was probably my motivation on some of these things. I say something like, uh, what's that about? In other words, it's a shortened version of, for those who are unfamiliar with the characters, please, guest, tell us what this character oh, is all I about. I have no you know, idea. That's why, yeah. point, I love how it was like, like, it was almost like interrogative <laughs> just now. But Jerry just comes back and says the same thing. I have no idea. Well, that's fine by me. Uh, <laughs> The last hey, thing I'm 45, 45 years ago, you know, or fifty years ago, I have no, I don't know. Wait, <laughs> and and in one remember. or two, you know what? In one or two cases, I've been told, no, I didn't do that. What are you talking about? So it's fine. <laughs> at at, uh, at comic conventions, people sometimes come up to me with comics uh, for me to sign, and I have to check the credit box to make sure I did it. <laughs> yeah, I don't have any remembrance of it. Now, mm -hmm. speaking of you know switching things up, not doing the same old, same old. You went off and ended up writing for, you know, film and television and what, you know, whatnot. Mr. Big Shot Hollywood over here, you know. <laughs> What's that all about? No. Um, but one of the things also, you worked on the Spider-Man series in the 1990s. You worked on Law & Order. Dun-dun. Get, you get to be the second Law & Order uh, writer on the show that I get to do the dun-dun to. So thank you. And <laughs> With Mark Guggenheim being the first one. Sure, and, sure. you know... You're responsible for things like that, and with Spider-Man, what was the major difference compared to writing for, you know, television for that versus the comic book? Um, well, the cynical answer is money. Uh, <laughs> See? <laughs> mm -hmm. the, the truth is they're very similar in a lot of ways. Um, writing for, uh, for television series involves being able to write in the voice of other creators, which is was true working at Marvel. You know, part of my job was to try to sound a little bit like Stan Lee, um, and as a result, you know, I, I wrote in a, in a in a fashion that was not necessarily entirely my voice. Um, and the other aspect of it was to come up with a, a lot of material in a short period of time under pressure and deadline. And that's also true in television. Uh, you're, when, you, when you're working, especially in network television, when you were working on 22-episode uh, uh, series, uh, the production demands were to turn out, uh, for, for the writing team to turn out uh, 22 episodes in a year or a script every eight days. Um, and... As a, depending upon where, where, what your role was, what my role was uh, on a particular series, uh, that could involve, as it did with Father Dowling, I, I basically rewrote every script that we did for the season that I was on it. Uh, my job was to be the, the uh, to, to, as my uh, producer said, you know, to, to run the scripts through my typewriter and take everybody's scripts and try to put them into the same voice so that the characters all sounded alike the, the, the series had a cohesion to the to the uh, to the pace and the style uh, of, of each episode uh, 
in other shows, you know, my job would be to come up with ideas for other writers uh, in a writing room where we would be throwing ideas around and come up with stories. And I was, from the background in comics, coming up with, you know, a story idea a week is not really very hard for me, because that's (laughs) what I did. Uh, And then there's the idea of uh, continuity. You know, does this work with what we know about this character, and will it fit with what we're hoping to do with the character in the future? And that, again, is something that comes from uh, comics. So there was, the transition wasn't as difficult creatively as one might, might imagine. And in a lot of ways, the pressure was a lot less. Uh, and the financial rewards were much, much greater, you know, at least at, at the time when I was doing it. And one thing I've noticed over the past few years, like, you know, when you were working on Spider-Man, the animated series, being involved with it, that was an era when a lot of the TV shows would incorporate people that were involved with the comics. Like it, it's not so much anymore, but you look at that, you know, bringing yourself on as a key Spider-Man writer to, you know, write the pilot of the show, no less, and going on with things like that. They, I believe uh, Toy Biz for the Spider-Man action figure line, they got Neil Adams to draw little Spider-Man illustrations in the style of the animated series for the card backs and whatnot. But mm-hmm. you see things like that, and I, there's, like, an aversion to that in recent years. Like, although recently they're doing Into the Spider-Verse 2, and I notice a lot of people in the comic book industry, like Joe Quinones, for example, uh, Howard the Duck artist and whatnot, he's going to be involved with the production of the movie. Why is there such well, an aversion to that, though? Well, I mean, back uh, what, what, what you're talking about in terms of Spider-Man uh, animated series, I, that was something that was controlled by Marvel. So they had the opportunity, you know, and the interest in, in using uh, creators from the field. Stan was directly involved in that. Um, but when you're talking about series that were being produced by uh, studios outside of the uh, the, uh, the outside of directly connected to the to the to the comic book business, there's always been an aversion. Yeah, uh, I couldn't get hired on any TV show for comic book w- relating to comics in the, uh, the 90s when I was, you know, working almost consistently, you know, in, in television and, and moving upwards, you know, in, in the field. Um, I, I applied to, you know, like Birds of Prey. I, I applied to Lois uh, and Clark. Uh, I was, uh, you know, I, I was interested in Smallville. None of them would take me on. Uh, I was amazed that Joff Johns got got involved, you know, and was was involved in Smallville. But that kind of resistance was part of the the of the nature of that field because until the until the two thousands, um, comic books were not being uh, comic book films and television was was not being created by people who were comic book fans. You know what I'm saying? Mm. Part of it was the uh, uh, the generation that had grown up uh, and was making television in uh, the 1980s and the, the two th- 1990s were people who had come of age in the 50s um, and now were in their 40s and 50s and in, in uh, 1980. Uh, 40s and 50s and 1990, and they were in charge of studios, and they were in charge of production companies, and they were in charge as showrunners, and none of them were comic book fans. 
when you get into the 2000s, now that you're talking about people who grew up in the, in the 60s and 70s reading comics, and they are comic fans, and they want to bring people in from comics. You see the difference? Mm-hmm. Um, they're now the people who make the decisions, and they're now the ones who say, hey, it would be great to have the current writer of this book you know, get involved. You know, Mark Guggenheim is a comic book fan from the, the 70s and 80s. So Mark is open to bringing in people who are comic book writers. Uh, you know, he brought Marv Wolfman in to work with him on, uh, to consult on the crisis uh, storyline. So that was, you know, both the right thing to do, you know, from, a, from an ethical and moral point of view, and also the creative thing to do, you know. Um, Greg Rucka wrote the screenplay for The Old Guard. Um, you know, uh, uh, Neil Gaiman is heavily involved in the Sandman production. Uh, and uh, and so on. You know, it's it's it, it, it depends upon who's doing the hiring, and it has more to do with whether they are themselves, uh, you know, true aficionados of the field, or if they are people who are hired from outside the field to do something because they have a reputation. And, you know, you look yeah. at, uh, in the, I believe, uh, late ni- mid to late 90s, early 2000s, you have, you know, the Superman animated series by uh, Tim and Dini, and that was a show where they brought a lot of comic writers on there. I believe Steve mm-hmm. Gerber wrote on there, Evan Dorkin, and it's it's funny that, yeah. you know, and again, that's one of the most underrated animated series of all time. Like, And, it, and look, at the, look at the animated films, the DC... Uh, the DC Universe animated films, you know, you have J.D. DeMat- uh, Jam DeMattis uh, working on a lot of those. Um, you know, you have uh, people who are, you know, the, the, the fellow who wrote the Black Hood, wrote the, uh, the Red Hood, wrote the Red Hood. Yeah. You know, so it's like uh, they are trying, you know, and part of that is because the person who's now in charge or, or was in charge of uh, animation is Mike Carlin, who comes out of the comic book biz. And you know is uh, you know interested in bringing comic book creators in. So it's all again, it's it, it, you know the old saying is it's it's not what you what you know it's who you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's also true that when you have people who are fans uh, doing the hiring, they are going to hire creators. When people who are not fans are doing the hiring, they're going to hire people who have reputations in other ways. So. One last thing, Jerry, I would like to uh, ask is, and this goes back, I believe, to the uh, mid-'80s thereabouts, that you and Roy Thomas were working on a script of a live-action X-Men film. But unfortunately, sure. with uh, the distributor Orion Pictures' financial troubles, bankruptcy didn't Orion, go anywhere. Orion is bankrupt. <laughs> the galaxy is on Orion's belt, men in black. Thank you. We, um, how far had you gotten um, with putting oh, that together? Yeah, we had written a full script uh, and, and a couple of drafts, uh, two drafts, I think. Uh, it that was a that was a nightmare for a lot of reasons, uh, more creative reasons than anything else, because uh, the people we were working with uh, knew pretty much nothing about what they were doing. Mm. They had just bought the rights, and uh, uh, it was it was that was a nightmare on a lot of levels. Uh, it would have been a very interesting film. I don't think you could have actually made it look very good because you're talking about the 80s where CGI was really very limited. Yep. Uh, 
I cannot imagine how some of this stuff would have been done. Uh, it would have had to been a lot of prosthetics. Uh, there would have been, uh, you know, some maybe some uh, stop motion animation, uh, some bad opticals. <laughs> it would have been pretty terrible. But we did do it. You know, we did write a script. Uh, I don't know, you know, that it, it was worth going going any further. It, it was also a good example to me and Roy of why you should never do anything for love. Um, we we had, by the time we wrote that script, we had been fairly well established as uh, feature film writers of big action movies, big science fiction action movies. Uh, not, not any of which had been made, you know, but, but that's kind of typical of, of Hollywood. You you can have a big career with ever, without ever having uh, anything produced. But we had a reputation, and we had a we had a um, we had a going rate for for our work, and the producers of this film had already run through their budget uh, for screenwriting, uh, and could not meet our rate. You know, we we, we should have gotten. Uh, I'll just pick a number out of my, my, out of the air. You know, say a hundred thousand dollars for the screenplay. And all they could offer us was forty thousand. And realistically, we should have said, "Thank you very much. Uh, we will we'll see you, you know, another time." Uh, <laughs> yeah. But we really wanted to do it. So, you know, I mean, we were offered the X Men. I mean, how could Roy Thomas and Jerry Conway not write a movie about the X Men, right? So we said, "Okay, we'll do it for you, but we'll do only one draft with no uh, no outline." We'll talk it out. We'll talk out the movie with you, and we'll write one draft. That's it, because that would have been what our fee would have been for one draft, forty thousand. Mm. Uh, we ended up writing three drafts of an outline, and three drafts of a screenplay, and spent what amounted to six months of our lives banging our heads against the wall working with these assholes <laughs> <laughs> for, for much less money than we we should have taken and uh, more abuse than uh, we, would, we should have put up with, simply because it was, was a potential, you know, project of, of love. Yeah. Never do anything for love. <laughs> no good deed goes unpunished. John Cougar Mellencamp. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's a great way to end the podcast. Well, uh, I want to make a point that today's recording of July 21st is exactly one year ago that Marvel announced 10 new superhero films at Comic-Con. And that was uh, including <laughs> Blade with uh, Mahershala Ali. Mahershala Ali. Natalie Portman as a female Thor in their first Asian-American superhero film, Shang-Chi. And here we are, here we sitting are. in a well, studio. I mean, hopefully hopefully, 2021 will be a, a fun year. <laughs> that could be a, literally fun or an acronym for something else that we're not going to even talk about. <laughs> <laughs> For The Marvelist, I'm Peter Melnick. I'm Jerry Conway. And I'm Eddie Wilson. Excelsior! It's time for another edition of Obsessed with Marvel. Jerry Conway, thanks for sticking around as we try to get some right answers here. <laughs> okay. The question I is... I don't uh, embarrass myself. <laughs> we'll handle that perfectly well for you. Don't worry. 2088 is the question number, and it reads as such. How does the title character of Terror, Inc., take on the abilities of others. The choices are absorbs them telepathically, 
replaces his body parts with theirs, duplicates their DNA, or switches bodies with them. This is in the early 90s, I believe. Terror Inc. How does a title character take on the abilities of others? Again, absorbs them telepathically, replaces his body parts with theirs, duplicates their DNA, or switches bodies with them. Well, since I don't know that character or that book or read anything in the 90s, I'll just pick randomly okay. A. Absorbs them telepathically. I'm going to go with that as well, but I was also thinking the last choice. Switches bodies with them? Yeah, it seems, that seems like something that would have been, like especially an early 90s comic. Yeah, but it's been done in at least two films, wasn't it? Called The Invasion of the Body Snatchers? And The Fly. You know, they switched bodies with a fly. The, just the it's head? fairly recent Maybe the arms? Maybe, uh, okay. All right. Well, um, I will be inclined to go with letter A. Let's try that. Absorbs them telepathically. No. The answer is B. Replaces his body parts with theirs. Okay. Wait. That's a title I have to read, too. I think it was only 13 issues, but it's what in the big, big, big pile of stuff to read. What so. a perfectly spooky number. Spooky. Oh. Very spooky, very evil. Okay, all right, let's go down to number 637 as I flip the pages. And okay, turn the page. One back, Bob Seeger. Okay, 637. Where did Mary Jane's Aunt Anna live? Choices are New Jersey, Long Island, Brooklyn, or next door to the Parkers? Uh, next door to the Parkers. Mary Jane's Aunt Anna. And we'd only hear about her once in a while, and Anna Watson. Uh, New Jersey, Long Island, Brooklyn, next door to the Parkers, and Jerry's going next door to the Parkers, and what do we say? Do we say the same thing? Okay, let's go with letter D, next door to the Parkers. Yes, that is correct. Okay. Redeeming ourselves from that first one. One for two. She's Aunt May's friend, because she would, and that's where she'd have to have been. (laughs) Sure. That makes sense. All right, number 602, who guest-starred in Giant Size Spider-Man number one? Tim Conway. From 1974, without oh, meeting that's... Spider-Man. All right, who guest-starred in Giant Size? Without meeting Spider-Man. Yeah, Giant Size. Giant Size Spider-Man number one, without meeting Spider-Man. Choices are Shang-Chi, Howard the Duck, Dracula, or Millie the Model. Giant Size Spider-Man. In 74. Yep. So that would have been when I was writing it. And <laughs> All right. So we have one that's Jerry Conway relevant. I told you. There's, there's hope, I think. I'm trying to... Huh. Shang-Chi, yeah. Howard the Duck, Dracula, or Millie the Mob. I remember Spider-Man and Dracula in on a title of one of those. And it wouldn't be Howard, because Howard uh, didn't cross the streams well, too think, often. Yeah, it was okay. also, I think, came a little bit later. Um, I don't think it would have been Millie. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say Dracula. I think it was, because okay. that cover seem, is like popping in my head. It, it is, too. So I think we're all good with C, Dracula. We are good with that. Okay. That's two for three. Two out of three ain't bad. <laughs> and there's meatloaf for you. Okay. I think we should... Is quit, it reheated? Quit while we're ahead. That's right. Quit, quit while we're ahead. There's nothing left inside of me. 